Good morning, everyone. Um, and those of you joining us online and on the phone, good morning. Uh, my name is Trent Walker. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I get the privilege of speaking to you today about the watershed point in the Gospel of John. Um, it, everything changes in the, uh, in the 12th chapter of John for the ministry of Jesus. But before we get to that, uh, I've selfishly, I told Jen, I didn't even ask, I told her that there was an announcement I want to make. Uh, Lynn and I are leaving uh, we'll be out of town for a week of rest. Uh, we leave tomorrow morning. And we tried to rearrange things so that we could be here on Friday, but uh, it's not, it's not going to be possible. Um, but we wanted to be here for the funeral of Lisa DeVries. Lisa passed away yesterday at 54 years old, just after 10 a.m. Um, Kurt and I were able to be over there and took communion a couple of weeks ago to them and I did get to ask Lisa this, um, are you at peace and is there anything left unsaid or undone? And she goes, I'm at peace. And no, there's nothing left. Um, and then Lynn and I were invited there yesterday, uh, Friday morning at 1030, just to pray with Ross and with Deb and with Lisa. Um, and it was clear that her time on earth was coming to a close. Uh, but again, she was still smiling. She could talk very quietly. Um, but the Lord called her home. And uh, I will ne neither be able to participate nor attend the, the, the funeral or the visitation, but I want to let you know when it is. Um, it will be at Aintama on Thursday for visitation. We don't have times yet. The family's meeting with the funeral home tomorrow morning at 10, 10 or 10.30, I believe. Um, but the funeral will be here on Friday at 11 a.m. And an hour prior to that, there'll be some visitation in the commons area. After the funeral, there'll be the um, kind of the, the, a meal uh, next door in the gym. But please keep Raj and Jan DeLong, Ross, Kayla, Anna, Kendra, Lisa's sisters, their husbands, their children. I mean, the support has been unbelievable. And I want to thank you on the DeVries behalf for your prayers, for your support, when they uh, took an alternative route um, a little over a month ago, for those of you who were able to participate with them financially, we just want to thank you for that on their behalf. And um, yeah, just ask you to be praying for them. Uh, they've got two college students and, a, and another who's still in uh, high school, and I just can't imagine. So uh, I'm going to pray uh, for them, but I'm going to pray for, for me too. But I will say that I think that knowing that none of us know when the Lord will call us home um, fits well with the passage today. I'm not going to capitalize on or use Lisa's death, but uh, it, it, God has interesting timing. Um, so let's pray together. Let's pray for the DeVries family, for the DeLong family, and uh, move into John chapter 12. Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you for the life of Lisa for the, the mother she, that she was, the way she served this church in many ways, one of which was elder. We thank you for the perseverance and the strength she showed through this suffering since last summer. We thank you for Ross, his tender heart, his devoted desire to serve his wife, for their daughters, for their extended family. And Lord, we ask, we pray for this church too. We thank you for how this church has loved them and supported them and cared for them. But also, Lord, we celebrate 
the going home of each one of your saints. We grieve it, but we know that blessed, blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. And Lord, we are going to hear from you today the things you say to people who said, thanks but no thanks. We ask that you speak to us because we are the people in the first century just like they are us. We have human needs, we have human hearts, we have human wills, we have a rebellious spirit, but we also crave you. So we ask that you satisfy our craving, not just temporarily so that we feel better today, but that you remind us that you are the resurrection, you are the light, you, you are everything. So speak to us and give me your words, your demeanor, your cadence, so that we hear your words for us, not my words for them. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So we are, this is what's known as the watershed point in the Gospel of John. And I know most of you know that we planted, Lynn and I planted a church years ago, and we called it Watershed. And the reason we called it Watershed is twofold. One, nobody really knows what a watershed is unless you're a geologist or someone who works, uh, you know, like DNR or something like that. So people would go, what does that mean? And we get to tell them. But the other thing is, and it is a geographical, uh, uh, it is a geographical thing, like the, the, the Continental Divide in the Rocky Mountains is a watershed. So if a drop of water hits the top of one of those mountains and splits in half, now we know that doesn't really happen, but splits in half, barring evaporation, um, if, it, if it splits in half at that watershed, that water on one side is going to end up in the Pacific Ocean, on the other is going to end up in the Atlantic through the Gulf of Mexico. That's a watershed point is a spot of division, a spot of change. Um, so here, Jesus' public work is completed. His signs, or that's what John calls them in the Gospel of John, his miraculous ministry is over in the Gospel of John. His discourses and teaching have been delivered, and yet the signs, the discourses, the person of Jesus is rejected. So from this point forward in the Gospel of John, Jesus is setting his chin toward what we call the passion, toward him being uh, accused Arrested, tried, convicted, scourged, crucified, dead, buried, and ascended. So everything changes in the Gospel of John in two verses. And those are the first two verses we're going to read today. So let me read those two, and then I'll give you a little of the theological framework of this, and then we'll read through the rest of the passage. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This is what the prophet, or this is what, this was to fulfill what the prophet, or what the word of, of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's going on in this passage, almost all ties back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. He was a, it was a light in the darkness. The Word came to those who belonged to him, but they did not receive him. That's what John is doing here. So you'll see those themes. Jesus has been sent by the Father. We know that. We see that in chapter 12, verses 44 and 47. The Father is the sole authority of his ministry. 
chapter 12, verses 45 and 49. He is the light shining in the darkness, verse 46. His intent is to bring salvation and eternal life. We see that in verses 47 and 50. And to those, uh, he's bringing that to those who will show faith. That's verses 44 and 46. So as we read this, listen for those themes. Light and darkness, who is responsible for Jesus' ministry? Who does Jesus speak on behalf of? And the, the, the salvation and everlasting life message. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord... This is from, paraphrase a little bit from Isaiah chapter 53. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And for this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he, the father, has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord But the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just, excuse me, whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I'm going to talk about the word fear for a moment. It doesn't show up in here directly. It does about they were afraid of the Pharisees. But there are two types of fear that Christians face. One is the fear of man, humanity. The other is the fear of God. We don't talk about the fear of God very much in the church in the last, say, 30 years because we think it means that we're supposed to be petrified of God. And that's not not what the word means. It really, it's more like honor or respect or to be in awe of God over and above honoring and respecting and being in awe of people. See, the the watershed point here is even though Jesus is the light light of the world and in the world, and he came to bring light in darkness, there comes a point, according to this passage, that people, even though they believe secretly, they won't confess publicly, that when the light, and that's the, the, the Isaiah, or excuse me, the, the, yeah, the Isaiah passage where he says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts. See, the light is out there, and you can see it. But if you don't receive it, it dims. And it's not that God is less powerful or God is less revealing, but our eyes choose not to see it. Our hearts choose not to receive it. 
and our minds choose not to experience it. See, we, according to Paul, are supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Yet we get caught up in wanting the praise of men over the praise of God. So I'm just going to ask some questions, and you decide whether these are applicable to you. But I want to caution you on one thing. One, if I don't give an example that fits you perfectly, that doesn't mean you're off the hook. Because I can't come up with every illustration, every example, every idea, every understanding, every experience that you have can only go with the experiences that I've had, I have and the experiences that I witness. But if the fear of man is greater in you than the fear of God, there might be some work that the Lord needs to do in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, in you as a person. If given the opportunity in a public setting to stand firm on your faith in Jesus, knowing that you'll be ridiculed, or at the very least you'll get the eye rolls, do you? When in a political discussion with someone in your neighborhood or in your condo development or over at Royal Park, wherever it may be, and someone has a differing opinion than you, do you... Shut down? Play nice? Do you get angry and call them stupid? Do you get accusatory? Or do you understand that it's possible that someone can see things differently than you and it's okay to love them anyway? I saw a video this week about some guy who was in the, the ER and they, he was almost going to have to go into intensive care because he had experienced an opinion that was slightly different than his. And it, it laid him out. The doctor came in, the nurse came in, and they had to regurgitate all the stuff back to him that he wanted to hear to overcome. That was the anecdote for overcoming an opinion that was slightly different than his. We live in a tribal world where we don't just look at another person and say, we disagree, but you're my brother, you're my sister. Now we have to demonize anyone who disagrees with us because our people will be disappointed with us if we don't. But what does the scripture tell us? How are we supposed to treat even evildoers? Well, I learned again on Wednesday at the gather that we are not to set ourselves opposed to the evil person. If someone slaps me upside the head, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. If someone asks for my garment, I'm supposed to give them not only that garment, but any garments I have. If a Roman soldier asked me to go a mile, which by law you had to, carrying his pack, carrying his whatever, I'm supposed to offer to go an extra mile. When I'm given the opportunity, if I fear the Lord over fearing people, I'm supposed to be willing to be gracious and merciful even when it costs me. And honestly, folks, if it doesn't cost me, is it grace and is it mercy? Jesus tells us things like, what good does it do you 
to love those who love you. Don't even the pagans do that? There's always a cost to being a man or a woman of God. There's always a choice to be made. There's always a watershed point. Day to day, even minute by minute, certainly week by week, we're given opportunity to choose to believe and act as if God, the Father, actually sent the Son to tell us who He is, whose we are, and how we, he, would, he would have us behave. And if I behave no differently than someone who does not know the Lord, then do I know the Lord? One of the questions that was asked of us a um, year, year and a half ago, or one of the statements that was made is, if the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors of the culture match the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors in the church, something's wrong in the church. Because we are to be countercultural. Jesus is calling that out right here. When the, there are people, members of the Sanhedrin, that quietly believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent to buy back the world. He's the suffering servant. He's going to be the wounded healer. There are some that quietly believe it. But because they're afraid they might be kicked out of the synagogue, there might be a cost to them, significant though it may be. They keep it to themselves. And Jesus, for all intents and purposes, says, there are no private followers of Jesus. And sometimes we get caught up. We want to serve the Lord, and we should and we choose the thing that is most important to us, and we give ourselves over to it. I remember back in, the, in 2020, Lynn and I had a week where we, we took the week off, and we painted, we stripped and painted our deck. I, don't, I do not want to do that again. But what was going on then is riots in Denver, and someone dear to me kind of got caught up in it and decided that all the things that were being said publicly about the riots and the oppression and all that kind of stuff. That, that was the truth. And everything else or anything else that anybody else said was done. And the one thing I have the opportunity to say to that person that, I'm, that is dear to me is if you're going to give your life to a movement, make sure the movement is worth your life. And Jesus and the gospel... And the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people, remains a movement. And if you are a part of that movement and you don't give your life to it all in, then are you part of the movement? If you're concerned of what others think because you're faithfully following Jesus then aren't you rejecting him before men? Jesus says that if you reject me before men, my father has to reject you. Now, I'm not coming down on anybody here. I don't like it. 
I wish it was softer. I wish it was nicer. I wish Jesus said, yeah, well, that private faith, I know it's difficult. It's a little bit tough. And yeah, you might lose your livelihood. You might lose your reputation. You might lose family members. So I get it. Just, just be quiet, quietly devoted to me. Keep it to yourself. Hide it away in your heart. But that's not what he says. They will persecute us because of him. I'm to pick up my cross daily and follow him. I'm to join him in his suffering. It's not very American of him. So what do you fear? Because if Jesus is telling the truth, and you know I wholeheartedly believe he is, I've devoted my life to the study of this book and the proclamation of this word. If he is who he claims to be, and every word he spoke to us actually came from the Father so that we would know him, Jesus says in a couple of chapters in John 17, verse 3, and this is everlasting life. I think the NIV says eternal. But we have a beginning with no end if we're followers of Jesus. Father, Son, and Spirit have no beginning and no end. So they're eternal. We're everlasting. And this is everlasting life. That they know you, the one true God. And that word for know is the same word used to, I'll be a little sensitive about this, but when, back in the old days when, when someone would go, do you know so-and-so? And it will not in a biblical sense. It's an intimate, describes the same kind of knowing as a husband and a wife know one another. That is what, that is what we're here to do. That is why Jesus came to us to show us that we can know the Father by knowing him. We can be intimately connected with the God of the universe who has our best interest in mind. And his plan for us is better than our plan for us. And if you want, to, you want proof of that, look at the world. Is it getting better? See, when man does man things, destruction comes. When man does God things, glory comes. In this world, there will be trouble. But take heart, says Jesus, I've overcome the world. In my Father's holy mansion, there are many rooms. I wouldn't tell you so if it were not true. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you so that when you come, you will be where I am. And he says, you know the way to the place that I'm going. And Thomas goes, well, we, we don't know where you're going. How will we know the way? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I promise you that if you're laying on your deathbed, you are not concerned about what your neighbors thought. You are concerned about what God says what he says about you. And I'm going to leave you with a story. I hate to use it because I, 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 it's just great at funerals. But I'm going to tell you this story. I may have said it before, 
but it's relatively new to me the last couple of months. There's a, there's a Scottish pastor named Alastair Begg. And he tells this story. Jesus on the cross, two criminals next to him. One criminal mocks. The other criminal says, are you, are you foolish? We deserve what we're getting. This man's done nothing wrong. Don't do it. And then he turns to Jesus and says, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus looked at him, an insurrectionist, a murderer, and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so Alistair Begg paints the picture like this. He goes, this guy, he dies, and he goes up to the gates of heaven. And there's an angel there. I don't know if it's the angels or the seraphim or the cherubim. We don't, or seraphim or the cherubim. We don't, I don't know for sure. Um, but he gets up and guy's got a clipboard. He says, uh, who are you? Gives his name. What are you doing here? No idea. I don't even know where I am. Well, what do you know about this newly developed doctrine of sanctification and of redemption? What do you know about hamartiology? What do you know about the, 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 the doctrine of ecclesiology. What, what, what are these words? So why are you? I, I don't know why I'm here. I'm just here. So the angel says, I'm going to go get my supervisor. Supervisor angel comes over and he's got his little iPad and he's like, well, answer this question, answer this question, answer this question. The guy's like, I have no idea. The guy that was on the cross next to Jesus starts getting frustrated. And, he, and, he, and one more time they said, why are you here? And he goes, because the guy on the center cross said I could come. That is it. None of us get to meet the Father because of anything we've done. We get to meet the Father because of what Jesus has done. And sadly, and I think Jesus is grieving when it says he cried out, these people who know the scriptures, who know who the Messiah is supposed to be, who see the works, who hear the words, who know Jesus' claim, they look at him and quietly some believe, but the rest reject and they end up murdering him. I think that Jesus is grieving here and he says, you don't get to do it that way. You don't get to do it your way. See, we're not righteous unless Jesus says we are. And there's an exchange that takes place. It's not economic. But the scripture tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. We're also told that it's not our righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ that makes us right with God. Righteousness just means in right relationship with God and with his people. So our sin on the cross is imputed is taken from us and placed upon Jesus. And he dies to take it to hell and leave it there where it belongs. And when he cries out to the Father and says, it is finished, and we receive him as Lord, God, and Savior, his righteousness is imputed upon us. So that when we face judgment, we need not fear God because we can say, the one on the center cross said I could come. It's not what I have done, but what he has done.
That, in summary, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so before I pray, I want to ask this question again. Is he the one you fear and honor and respect? Is he, is he and his movement a movement worthy of your life? Or do you fear man and therefore your heart, your mind, and behavior are dictated by the will and the whim of a fickle human culture? I can't answer it for you. But God knows. And you know. So I pray, Lord, help us fear you over humanity because you are over humanity. And all of God's people say, amen. Amen.